0: All right, friends, I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles. Oh, let's turn. Friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of James. The letter of James. The letter, of James. The letter of James comes after the, um, the book of Hebrews. It's near the back of the book. Um, it's before 1st and 2nd Peter, before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So if you're kind of working your way backward from Revelation, you'll have Revelation and then uh, John's letters, Peter's letters, um, and then the letter of James. If you're coming, coming from the right, you've gone to Hebrews, you've gone too far. So the letter of James. And our scripture reading this morning will just be James uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And so we will begin um, by reading God's word. James 1 verses 1 through 8. So We're starting a new series on the letter of James called Faith Works. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the reading of God's word this morning. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, and we ask now as we reflect on what you've said through James, what you've said to his audience, that you would say it to us, that you would encourage us, With your word at this time, help us by your spirit to put truths deep into our souls, into our hearts and minds, that we may heed your word. In uh, in all glory and honor goes to Christ. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, show of hands. How many of you have faced trials in your life? Show of hands. a Nice and high. No, none of this. Like, nice and high. How many of you have faced trials in your life? I'm looking for those who have not raised their hands at all. And if you're below, like, eight or nine, that you, you get an exception, right? Okay, show of hands. How many of you found those trials to be very painful and difficult? Anybody who goes through trials and goes, not painful and difficult? Nah, it was no, it was no big one. Okay, not very many. Show of hands, last time. How many of you w- would avoid... Uh, those trials, again, if you could. Some. Some. Okay. Glad you were honest. Well, today we're going to be starting our new series in James. And as uh, many of you know, we, this is our normal habit. We to read a passage of scripture and we go through an entire book of the Bible. And we're coming to a brand new uh, book, and that is, or a letter, and that is the letter to, of James... And uh, it's a very popular book today. Hasn't always been the case that it was a popular book. There was actually some debate um, on whether to even include the the book of James. uh, But there was uh, too much evidence for them to, to leave it out. This was this is included in the New Testament. And James, the author of this book, has as his very first order of business addressing trials Trials. And so this morning, we're going to look at what James has to say to us, what action, what call to action he has for us uh, who are experiencing trials, what to do in trials. But before we do that, it might be helpful um, to kind of uh, introduce ourselves to the author and to the audience before we get to the action that he's calling them to take. So if you want to follow along in your handout, you can take some notes. And I have a little outline for us to go through. We're going to look at the author of this letter. Who is James? Then we're going to look at the audience. Who is this that James is writing to? And then we're going to look at the action that he gives for us through them. First, the author tells us right there in verse one, James uh, the Greek word there is y- Jacobus. It's actually the word Jacob. The way it comes down through the Latin, it comes to us as James. But in, uh, in Greek, it basically, or his Hebrew name, it would have been Jacob, like the, the patriarch. Um, Jacob, whose name gets changed to, to Israel. This is, this is his name. Very popular name in those days for Jewish boys. And there were uh, so popular, in fact, that there were four Jameses that we have identified in the New Testament. Four different Jameses. Now, the one you're probably thinking of, the most likely um, name that comes to mind when you think of James, you, you're probably thinking uh, one of the 12 disciples named James, who was the uh, brother of John. And he was the brother of John, which means he was also one of the sons of Zebedee. And Jesus gave James and John that um that uh that name the the nickname boanerges which sons of thunder i don't know what that means maybe they were loud maybe they were boisterous maybe they were big Uh, i don't know what the reason why he says that but he calls them the sons of thunder james and john um that's the that's the uh the name probably the person that's most referenced in the new testament okay that is not this james That James was um, was included in the inner circle with Peter and John. So it kind of seems maybe like he had a very important role among the disciples. He was invited by Peter and John to come to certain miracles with Peter and John. Jesus invited uh, James along with Peter and John to experience a a couple of private miracles that Jesus had performed when Jesus was taken up onto the mountain on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, That is the first James. And he was martyred very early uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, this is not that James. There's a second James who was also one of the other 12 disciples and one of the other apostles. And he's called James, son of Alphaeus. And he's called James, the son of Alphaeus, probably to distinguish him from the first mentioned James. So we had two of Jesus's disciples, the core 12 disciples who become the apostles. Two of them were named James. One of the other disciples, and and it's not that James either, I should say. Uh, There is another James that's mentioned, and he is the father of another one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's described as Judas, the son of James. Okay, so he was a a father of one of the 12 disciples. And this is to probably distinguish him from another Judas, uh, who was a part of Jesus' 12 disciples. And that was Judas Judas. Iscariot this is not that James either so it's not not this James either no what uh, many commentators tend to agree and the evidence seems to point to is that this is the, the fourth James that we have introduced in the New Testament and that is James the brother of the Lord Jesus That's how he's referred to in a couple of places Matthew's gospel uh, quotes some questions that people had in the crowd about this Jesus and the claims that he was making and the works that he was doing. And they asked among themselves, isn't this the carpenter's son? You guys remember this? Is not his mother called Mary? Like, wait a second, this is just Jesus that we have know, we've seen since he was a kid. He grew up in this little... Village here in Nazareth. Is this not the carpenter's son? Joseph's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And then they say this. And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Remember when Jesus' ministry had started and he was going around and teaching about the kingdom of God. And then teaching his unique role in bringing about the kingdom of God. Many from his family were very concerned and nervous. And in Mark chapter three, it says, and when his family heard about all these crowds that were following around Jesus and the claims that he was making, it says they were trying to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. It's very likely that James, the brother of Jesus, being met, listed first there, it means he probably was the, the next oldest son of Joseph and Mary, After Jesus, they, James was probably leading this group to go and try to rescue Jesus and bring him back. He's like, my older brother's kind of is losing it here. They sought to dissuade him in Mark's gospel in chapter three. It says, and his mothers and brothers came and they were standing outside. They sent in some messengers to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him and said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And this is when Jesus answered, who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus was talking about the close familial relationship that he had with his disciples there. But the point that is revealed in those verses is that James, that Jesus actually had earthly siblings. He had four brothers who are named elsewhere in Mark's gospel. It says that there were, um, that he had uh, sisters too. They go, aren't his sisters also with him? So we, we speculate Jesus probably had at least six, maybe seven brothers and sisters, earthly brothers and sisters. I should say half brothers and half sisters, Because, of course, Jesus was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. But then Joseph and Mary had children after that. This James, the author of this letter, if you could think of it this way, he's the younger brother of Jesus. And he was likely a very major skeptic of his brother. John's Gospel in seven, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For his, even his brothers, um, that not even his brothers believed in him. But this James apparently becomes a believer after seeing the resurrected Jesus. Paul tells it that when Jesus was resurrected from the, day, the grave, before he actually went to the, uh, the twelve disciples, In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Then he appeared to James, and then he goes to the apostles. That James is his brother. Probably his next, nearest brother. And this James ends up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So imagine that. Imagine being Jesus' younger brother. Imagine growing up and seeing Jesus and then watching Jesus. His ministry begin. and imagine being skeptical of, of him up until the resurrection from the grave. Well, imagine seeing your older brother be crucified on a cross and placed in a tomb, and then to see him resurrected from the grave. James was a skeptic who becomes a believer. And then becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So much so that he actually, um, he probably was the leader of the church overall. We sometimes tend to think that that role fell to Peter. But there's evidence in the New Testament that uh, even Peter kind of defers to James in a couple of places in Acts. As does Paul. So what does James think about himself? Let's, Let's get back to our author here. What does James think about himself? First one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant. It's also the term that's used for a bond servant or a slave. James sees himself as a slave or a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, which means what he's saying here, in effect, is Jesus is his master and his Lord. What tremendous humility. James in writing to this group of people. He doesn't cite his office. James the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't even cite his special biological relationship with Jesus as his half brother. He doesn't say Jesus. Hey I'm his next younger brother. He goes James. A servant. Of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is. Not my brother, not merely my earthly brother. He is my master. What, what does that, what example does James, even just in those opening words, give for us of how we should view ourselves in relationship to Jesus? We could talk a whole lot about James and we'll reveal more about him as we go through his, his book here, but it might be helpful now to turn to the audience. Who is James writing to? Verse two, uh, actually, the rest of verse one, it says, uh, James, a servant of the Lord, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings, he says, 12 tribes. This is kind of 12 tribes. If you know the biblical story, you're like 12 tribes. That should kind of ring a little bit of a, a, a bell here. This is kind of a code word, perhaps, of the people of God. And they were probably mostly Jewish. The early date of this book, it's one of the earliest books in the New Testament. You probably didn't have very many Gentile believers at this time when this book was written. So uh, these were Jewish believers who believed in in Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus the Christ as the Messiah. Now, what does that mean for us? I mean, we're sitting here reading this. And does that mean this book is, is not for us who are Gentiles in the faith? By no means. This is God's word. God has sovereignly preserved this word for us, and he's included in his plan to have this scripture for us so that he could teach us through it. This word is for us, too. Now, these 12 tribes, he describes as being in the dispersion. The Greek word here is diaspora, the, the scattering. Some other translations have it as, as the who are scattered among the nations, the 12 tribes as they are scattered among the nations. This very likely has a, a reference to something, an event that happened in the book of Acts, really early in the history of the, the church. So I invite you to turn to, to that passage in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 7, we have this long speech Recorded from one of the the newly appointed deacons of the church, Stephen. And he's calling out some of the disbelieving religious authorities there in Jerusalem. It's a fascinating uh, little sermon he preaches here, but at the very end of it, he um, kind of challenges them. Kind of gives us a nice soft challenge. Notice what it says at the end of chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, right? Uh, that's a way to endear yourself to to your audience. You stiff-necked people, which is a code word for being the, you're, you're rejecting the clear revelation of, of God. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the whole, the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The crowd that Stephen was speaking to at this time responds that they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. And they, as it says in verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice. And stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who is later named Paul in the New Testament. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That event right there starts a massive wave of persecution in the early church. Up until this time, it had been pretty much centered right around the capital city of Jerusalem. But with this event, the church ends up scattering. As a result of this persecution. Notice what it says in verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day. A great persecution against the church. In Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles. So Jewish believers in Christ. Because of this persecution. Are now driven out and scattered. That term scattered. That's the same term that's used for this 12 tribes who are the diaspora, the the dispersion. And then notice what it says in verse 4. The word is used one more time. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. A little later in Acts chapter 11, it says, And now those who were scattered because of the persecution... That arose after Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. I love this. This is fascinating. But notice that the, the apostles stay in Jerusalem, it says. But the persecution drives uh, many others out and they end up gossiping the gospel out to wherever they went. This is who James is writing to. It's early in the church history. It's an early book. And he's writing to the 12 tribes, these Jewish believers in Messiah who are scattered all throughout because of this persecution. They were probably experiencing backlash from their own community. Probably experiencing some um, backlash from family or friends who did not. Believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Can you imagine the trial that would be? The difficulty in the family relations there? I ask that question. Maybe for many of you, it's not hard to imagine. Can you imagine the hurt feelings? Can you imagine as you're maintaining family relationships, the pressure to kind of abandon those convictions so as to smooth things over in family relationships? Or the temptation to even compromise the faith. These people, the audience that James is writing to, he's writing to a people who are out of place. He's writing to a people who through faith in Jesus are now scattered because of that faith. They're they're spiritually saved and blessed, but physically they're homeless. So is there any similarities To us today, they may have been a a Jewish audience. They may have a completely different ethnicity than us, but there are certainly similarities to us today. So here you have James, the, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's writing to a group of believers who are experiencing difficult trials and he calls them to action. And here's the action that he calls them to in verses two through four. And I'll summarize it this way. Here's, here's the call to action, and then we'll unpack it through seven insights that we gain from the text. Uh, James's call to action here, again, the audience's problem is that they're experiencing trials and temptation, and they don't know how to make sense of them. And so James's call to action is this. Joyfully, you must joyfully embrace the trials you experience because they are profitable for your maturity and perfection. In Christ I'll say it again you must joyfully embrace the trials you experience because they are profitable for your maturity and perfection so back to our question how many of you face trials and temptations at some time in your life how many of you found those trials to be painful or difficult and how many of you would avoid those if you could James has a word for us about those trials and the purpose they have for us. Here's the first insight. Trials are inevitable in this life. Trials are inevitable in this life. And I would say that this is true for all people. Everyone will experience trials of some kind, some some less than others. But I'll say this, and maybe this is a, a slightly a little more controversial, but I'll say this. This is especially true for Christians. I think it is especially true that Christians will experience trials in this life. Here's some of the data I, for why I make that assertion. Jesus himself had said to his disciples, I have said these things to you, these, this teaching that he's given them, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And about tribulation, he says, you will. (laughs) It's a certainty. Paul and Barnabas are described as they're going around on their missionary journeys from church to church, trying to strengthen and encourage the church. uh, Luke speaks of them this way. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's a must. Paul, writing to Timothy, speaking about how Jesus had brought him through various trials, says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in our text here, it doesn't say, if you experience trials, When. When you experience trials. Now, trials are are difficult and they're painful, and we tend to avoid what is difficult and painful. But the pain and difficulty through trials is inevitable in this life. Here's the second insight, and then we're going to come back to that here a little bit, build on that in a moment. But here's the second insight that we should uh, keep in mind about trials. Trials can come at any time and in many forms at any time. Notice in verse two, it says when you meet those uh, trials, Um, the the Greek word, it's just um, the Greek word there literally means to fall, fall into or fall around Um, the meet. I mean, that's, I just read that. I'm thinking, Oh, it's nice to meet you. Uh, This is more like, no, you fell into these these trials. They could happen at any moment. It's the same word that's used for the story that Jesus tells about the man who goes down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. (laughs) He did go to the robbers. Oh, nice to meet you. Like he fell into their hands. They beat him. They robbed him. They stripped him and left him by the side of the road dead. That's a trial. Fell into it. It's also the term for when Paul is on his missionary journeys and the ship meets the reef that that it uh, that it runs aground on this reef and then the sea tears the ship apart and they have to swim for their lives to get ashore. The ship met the reef. See, the idea of this is like falling into a a crisis circumstance. Okay, this And let me point out kind of the unscheduled nature of it. How many of you got an advance notice on your little smart device of the trial that was coming? Oh, you got a trial in next week. Trial is experiencing. How many of you had that? No? How many of you got that trial came out of nowhere, hit me like a truck? Show of hands of the trials you experienced. Suddenly, at a moment of crisis, you meet the trial. It comes at any time, and it comes in many forms. It's literally the word there for multicolored, multifaceted. He's casting a wide net here of what kind of trials are they? Just all kinds. Red, blue, green, yellow, brown, mauve, chartreuse. It's all of it. It's multicolored. Any sort of trial. That means that the trial that you experience might not be the same kind of trial that somebody else would be experiencing. Nevertheless, it's still a trial for you. From little to great, all trials are trials, and all of them have a purpose, as we're going to see in a moment. So this is why sometimes I don't think it's very helpful um, when you're going through a difficulty to kind of compare with somebody else who's going through a greater difficulty. Now, I, I get it. Sometimes it's really good for us to keep perspective. But if you ever done that? You've kind of looked at your life and you fret and you worry about the, the hardship, the things that you're going through. And then you hear something on the news on Facebook or social media about something somebody else is going through. That's quite tragic and a really difficult trial. And you, you look, kind of compare yours to theirs. And you're like, wow, I don't, I don't have it as bad. It could be a whole lot worse. That's good to do. That's good for the empathy and compassion that you would have for those who are experiencing those trials. And it's good to keep us perspective on the trials that we experience. But here's what I don't want that to do. I don't want that uh, to be cause for you to dismiss your trial as a trial. These trials are multicolored. Don't compare your trial with somebody else's so as to think that your trial not a trial because that will unfortunately dismiss the point of the trial and there is a point that will undermine the purpose of the trial and the trial has a purpose as we're going to see so those are the first two insights here's the the third insight we must then okay so you're thinking okay um if trials are inevitable we're going to experience them they could come at any time and in many forms then What should we do about these trials? The answer is we must think rightly about the value of these trials. Notice the very first word of verse two. Count. Other translations have consider or to think. The same word is used, uh, is uh, translated for leader or ruler. Now, why is that? What does that mean? Consider. There's a connection. This is not just kind of thinking this is kind of the thinking that like a military leader would have to do. Okay. This is a, a very, uh, the term for kind of a strenuous intellectual activity that is carefully weighing the pros and the cons of something because a decision needs to be made. Okay. I love reading like world war two history and, um, Especially like biographies of of leaders and generals, even not even just the higher level ones, but even the the, the captains and the lieutenants and some of the encounters that they go through and the, the decision making that they have to do. Okay? That's consider here. That's consider. Careful deliberation. That's what James is telling us to do. You have to carefully deliberate about these trials. And this is the conclusion that you should come to about that after that careful deliberation. And this is the fourth uh, insight. Trials are to be viewed as occasions for joy. So here's your think rightly about the value of these trials and the value of the trial should be an occasion for joy. Consider it all joy, he says. Okay now this is uh, this is not joy all joy in an exclusive sense meaning all you should be experiencing is joy this is more like uh, not exclusive it's talking about the intensity of this joy this is a, a great joy or a full joy one commentator has to say this about understanding what does this mean all joy count it all joy he says this, James does not then suggest that Christians facing trials will have no response other than joy as if we were commanded to never be saddened by difficulties. His point, rather, is that the trials should be an occasion for genuine rejoicing, right? So here's you could have joy in the midst of grieving. Kind of hard to fathom, but this, this, is, this is the type of joy that James is speaking of here. This is, this is a, a, a not quantitative, this is a qualitative. How big a joy is this? It's a massive, utter joy, even in the midst of grief and hardship and sadness. It's not just, oh, I get to be happy all of the time. But you still have joy. Peter, I think, says this, captures this really well. First Peter chapter one, verse six. He says something very similar to what James is saying here. Peter says in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. (laughs) Okay, you're experiencing grief. And in this you rejoice. And that's what James is saying to do here, right out of the box. Ponder, evaluate, deliberate carefully. But make sure you come to this conclusion. Trials are an occasion for joy. And he goes on to explain why that is the case. Because, here's the fifth insight, trials produce endurance. Trials produce endurance. The reason that we rejoice is we know what the trials produce because nobody says, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance translated uh, elsewhere. The, the term there is to bear under pictures kind of like a a heavy weight and you're bearing underneath this heavy weight and it's not crushing you you're bearing under it and this is what trials produce it's usually translated like endurance or perseverance or steadfastness as it has here in the esv i think an, an illustration i think of is um uh, weightlifting could be any kind of exercise or physical activity, you know, running or any other kind of sports. But I think weightlifting is an excellent one. There's a process that goes on in weightlifting where it's basically a three-step process. It's stress. You stress the muscles. And then the muscles recover through rest or nutrition. And then is the next phase, adaptation. So... You could bear under a certain amount of weight, till you can't lift any more, and then your body recovers, and then it adapts, it could do that weight and actually more, okay? Maybe not a great image for non weightlifters in the room, uh, including myself, um, but there's, there's a truth to that. There's stress, recovery, and then adaptation, the body, as it's bearing under a weight, what does it produce? <clears throat> Endurance. Adaptation. It produces something. So trials produce endurance, but then James doesn't stop there. He goes to the the last point here. What do they produce? Trials um, have a purpose to make us mature in Christ. Okay, so in verse three, he says, for, you know, here's the principle, the testing of your faith. Bears, produces bearing under endurance. And then he says, and so here's, here's the second command. Okay. The first command is for, for them to consider, to count, to think, to deliberate. Here's the second command he gives in these four verses and let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. So the testing of your faith produces this steadfastness and steadfastness now takes that at when it's kind of come to the to its full effect to the end of the line. It produces perfection and completion so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the ultimate purpose of the trial. Okay? And, and there is a purpose, right? Kind of. There's a little tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, use of the term like meat. Like we saw this, this term that you fall into these trials. And from our perspective, that seems like what is happening just happened. We fell into it. It didn't fit on our schedule. It surprises us. But when it comes from God's perspective, there's a purpose. Verse 4 is telling us these trials have a purpose. And that purpose is for your growth, for your maturity, for you to be complete, for you to have a a bulletproof faith. The Lord is the one who directs our steps. He allows these experiences, these trials. Okay. God is not helpless to get you out of those trials. He chooses not to because these trials have a purpose. A lot of you have have kids. You've probably encountered that point in parenting where you have to allow your kids to to fail. Have you ever experienced that? where you, know, you, you want your, your kids to do something, they don't do it, a homework assignment or some other project, or maybe as they get a little older and they go to their job, and you know maybe they've overslept, and you know that they've overslept. I'm not speaking of any particular child of mine here, uh, but you want to go down and rescue the situation, right? You want to wake them up. How many of you have had this encounter, parents? None? Nobody? You... The temptation to go and rescue your child out of the trial. <clears throat> How many of you have let the, tri- the child experience the trial? How many of you go, man, that was a hard decision? Because you want a helicopter in and save them, right? But you realize later, no, this is actually for their good. Sleeping through their alarm and getting late to work, they need to experience the consequences of that. These trials have a purpose. They have a purpose. Because trials produce endurance. And endurance, when it finishes its race, makes us mature and complete. God in his wisdom has set it up so that in this world and in this life, trials are one of the means God uses to make you like Christ for Jesus himself experienced trials being the eternal son of God did not exempt him from trials indeed his trial took him all the way to the cross to save sinners who would trust in him and so because of that, James says, when you weigh it all out, do you think through it all, you deliberate on the whole process of this whole thing that you're experiencing. As you're scattered among the nations, as you're in the diaspora, that these trials, no matter what they look like, no matter what color they are, no matter when they happen, they happen for a purpose. That's for your growth, for your maturity. And because of that, you rejoice. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, what trials are you experiencing right now? Here's the word of action for you as you experience them. Joyfully embrace the trial because they are profitable for your maturity and perfection. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for we thank you for this word that you've given us. And we thank you that by your spirit, you've, di- you've directed and led James to write to this scattered homeless group that was experiencing all sorts of difficulties and trials from the extreme of outright persecution to um, strained familial relationships because of your commitment to Christ. God, we thank you that, that their experience is also our experience. And so James's word is also our word. We thank you that you've given us this instruction for how we are to understand these trials and difficulties that we experience. God, we would pray that by your spirit, you would help us to put these difficult words uh, to practice in our life. That when we experience the trial, that we would recognize it, that it's coming ultimately from your hand and that it is ultimately for our good. And for that, we would rejoice. Help us to do that, God. Help us to do that so that we could be faithful followers of your son, Jesus, in whose mighty name we pray. And all God's people said. Amen and amen. Friends, I invite you to stand for our closing uh, benediction. And as usual, if uh, I usually invite people up for prayer. If you have some things that you need prayer for, if you have some questions about the passage of scripture here or about the gospel, welcome you to come on up and love to, to talk with you and pray for you and hear about the tri- trials that you're experiencing. And um, uh, so uh, just that offer always stands every week and a reminder that the offering box is in the back. And there, there are a couple of announcements we didn't get to today, Uh, but check your handout for, for those. Um, And with that, we just close with this benediction that brothers and sisters may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy spirit be with you all as you go thank you